invite you to take your Bible with me. We're going to turn to the prophet Jonah, first of the uh, several minor prophets that we're going to be going through over the next little while, and a few more weeks in this, in this book of Jonah. We're looking at uh, chapter 1, verse 17, through the end of chapter 2. That's uh, just 11 verses here, and I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles as we take in the Word of God as it is being read. So let's hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of God. Well, as is my habit every time we come to the preaching of the word, I need to pray. And I do this because we need the illumination of this text by the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge together that nothing can happen in our hearts through the voice of a mere man. We need the spirit to work. We need the spirit to make us ready to hear from him. So we're gonna pray just that. Father in heaven, Thank you for your word that lies open before us and it's so easy to access it and we, we realize that we're so neglectful of taking it in at times. But in this moment, in, this, in these next few minutes, Father, we want to hear from you and we all need to hear beyond the guy speaking. We need to hear your voice. We need your word planted in our hearts. So I pray, Father, for, for myself that you would give me utterance, that you would give me uh, clarity of speech, Lord, that you would give us all uh, a receptivity of mind and heart and expectancy that we're actually going to hear from you. So to get beyond the man and seek what comes from you, the good food of your word, we pray that we would be nourished by it even now. For the glory of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Well, in studying this, uh, this book of Jonah, two things stand out to me. First of all, God's compassion to extend his mercy beyond the Israelites. He is sending Jonah to these Ninevites. But also God's patience, his extraordinary patience with Jonah's reluctance as a prophet. But as I've been studying it, there's, there's been this looming question, and I, I took the liberty of asking some other pastors this last week. And the question is this, does Jonah repent? Now, if we didn't know the end of the story, what we see here in chapter 2, this psalm 
could look just like that, an expression of repentance. <laughs> but then when you get to the end of the story, you find that while Jonah has certainly had a change of direction, it doesn't seem to be an obvious change of heart. That's why I struggle with this. Now, this isn't a typical prophetic book. It's mostly prophetic narrative. And, and as we read it, we're, we're almost compelled to consider Jonah as a little bit of a moral story. You know, don't be like Jonah in the first chapter. Then do be like Jonah in the second and third. But then don't think like Jonah in the last chapter. And of course, I'm asking myself the question even as I'm studying it. So what is Jonah? What's the purpose of this book? And in the passage we read together this morning, I was, I was drawn to that. That's why I had us recite it together. Jesus gives us the answer, the purpose of the book, according to Jesus. And at the time, Jesus was answering a challenge from some unbelieving Pharisees who said, oh, you're some miracle worker? Give us a sign. You think you're the Messiah? Give us a sign. And he said to them, an, uh, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up against will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now with Jesus saying that the prophet Jonah is a sign, I take it that Jesus re was referring to more than the very obvious picture of Jonah's three-day stay in the watery grave being likened to his burial. Now to the initial question, the perplexing question, whether Jonah truly repents is actually beside the point. I take it that what God says to Jonah is far more important than what Jonah does or does not do, what God says to him. And what God does to Jonah and says through Jonah, that's what we'll look at because I take it that he is a prefiguring type of Christ. Now, I've just introduced a, a theological concept here. Some of you are familiar, but a type is, a, is an historical event or person that prefigures a greater reality. The greater reality in technical terms is the anti-type. So where the type, the actual historical thing, event, person, is often flawed and will by necessity be, the anti-type, who is Christ, is complete and perfect. So just an example of type, anti-type. So the Passover lamb in Exodus, that's, that's known to everyone. That is a type of Christ, the anti-type. He is the lamb of God who took the way of the sin of the world. So the Passover lamb is a prefiguring type. Now, let's just recap the book of Jonah for a moment. First chapter, Jonah heard the word of the Lord. He was told to go to Nineveh and warn them. Jonah has some sense that, that, that they would repent and he doesn't want that to happen, so he tries to flee. He tries to flee. He takes a ship headed for Tarshish and as it states in the text twice, away from the presence of the Lord. He thinks he's getting away from the presence of the Lord. So in response, the Lord sent a storm. There's a reason for the storm. Jonah is revealed as the culprit. And then the mariners 
at Jonah's behest, throw him overboard in order to calm the storm. That's where we pick up our chapter this morning, the section this morning. Now, between the fish swallowing up Jonah and vomiting him up on the beach, the text that we read together is mostly a psalm. And if you look at your footnotes, if you've got a printed Bible and you look at the footnotes attached to this, you're going to see elements from several different psalms being brought in. Now, I want you to keep in mind that not everything in the psalm would apply, apply to Christ, and it need not. This psalm that we're reading, I'm not talking the psalms, psalms, that's true there too, but this psalm, not everything in this psalm would necessarily point to Christ. And it doesn't have to, but it is pointing to him because Jesus said, something greater than Jonah is here. So what I want to do this morning is through the lens of Jonah's psalm, I want to look at the greatness of Christ. We're going to look at the greatness of Christ. I'm going to see certain things revealed. I have four headings under which we'll consider this, this psalm. And the first one that I want you to note is Judgment. This reveals judgment. Now we know what judgment is, but it's essentially a decision about the quality or value of something. Is something good or is it bad? That's a judgment. So in a, in a practical sense, this is something I have to face all the time. You open the fridge for those leftovers, right? You notice some fuzzy stuff has grown on top. Now you have to make an informed decision. The two-week-old pot roast is it corrupted or not? Do I eat or not? Now, Kathy will tell you that my tolerance for the age of leftovers is higher than hers. But even I, even I can understand that the fuzzy mold means this thing is corrupted. It is bad. So the judgment is the trash bin. It's easy, right? That's, so it's, very, it's just simply like good or bad. We, we get what judgment means. Now, Jonah rebelled. He tried to flee from the Lord's presence. Now he finds himself in a watery grave. Verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol, means grave, I cried. Now, you can see echoes of Psalm 118.5 here. So why is Jonah there? Yes, he told the mariners to throw him over, but you see, as we continue in verse 3, he actually attributes this judgment to God. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Again, echoes of Psalm 88, 6 and 7. Now, just as a brief aside here, one of the reasons why some scholars do not see repentance is because what Jonah is doing, he's drawing from these psalms that locate the reason for the suffering of the psalmist. They locate the reason for that in the oppression from the psalmist's enemies, some injustice done to him. So in Jonah using these and, and kind of pulling these psalms together, is he saying, I am unjustly oppressed? Now, we don't know whether Jonah fully understands his own culpability and what's gone on. The reader can see why. We have great clarity here. And Jonah thinks in being thrown overboard that he is destined to die. Now, of course, that changes, and we see the psalm. He, he knows that life is, 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 is now uh, given to him. But initially, he thinks 
death. That's what's going to happen. Now, why would Jonah die? Why, why, in fact, would anyone die? And I hope we understand this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Any sin, any transgression against the word of God, any rebellion brings death. It's what, it's what the Lord warned Adam and Eve when he said, don't eat of that fruit that's forbidden. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I get it. Someone ignorant about the very character of God, they might say, well, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit. Come on. And I know it's a natural human inclination to rate the severity of our own sins. We use a horizontal standard. We look around us and we say, well, well, no one's perfect, right? But I'm certainly not as bad as that, that murderer, that rapist. And what we do with our sins is that we, we tend to minimize them with euphemisms, right? Instead of, and we hear this all the time, instead of I lied, now it's, well, I misspoke. Instead of youthful rebellion, he's just finding his way. Instead of fornication and adultery, it's consensual. It's an open relationship. It's polyamory, these words we see. Instead of homosexuality being an abomination, it's finding his or her authentic self. And we know what the Word of God says. And God, we must understand, is the only judge. He is the highest judge. His Word is law. And God does not grade on a curve. It's pass-fail. And, and since we've all sinned, Romans 3.23, the wages of our sin, Romans 6, 23, is death. Our grade is condemned. Now, Jonah here is lamenting his own circumstances. But I take it that, that God is speaking about Christ through him. Like Jonah, Jesus was consigned to the grave. He received the judgment but Jesus' death, of course, I say of course, and as believers in Jesus, we, we know. But others who are outside the Christian faith don't get this. Jesus' death was not an accident of history. It was, in fact, the Father's will to do it. Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, referring to the Son of God. And that judgment that Jesus bore was not for his own sin, of course, but it was for ours. You see, the certainty of God's judgment for sin means that someone must pay. Someone must pay. Sin must be judged. Now, the good news for all of us who are in Christ is for the one that truly repents, for the one that truly looks to Christ in faith, that judgment is averted God did that by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin and condemned sin in the flesh. Jonah, pointing to Christ, is a sign of God's judgment for sin. So the second thing is alienation, alienation. Now, uh, when it comes to watching 
you know, streamed shows on Netflix and things like that. Um, I really like the show Dateline. It's basically long-form news program, and almost all of them are about solving a murder. It's usually a good news story in the end, but I find it fascinating. Like, at least if you look at that, like, no one's going to get away. There's cameras, there's DNA, there's all kinds of stuff. Anyway, all of that aside, but one stuck out to me because the, the story was this, um, this uh, killing and it was committed by a son and his new wife and, and they plotted to kill both his parents because it was going to be a great uh, you know, uh, insurance payout of a couple million dollars. Now, he's, in, he's been caught and he's in prison and he's being interviewed now by the Dateline crew. And some years had passed, and he was asked questions about his childhood. His parents were loving. They provided for him. There was never any abuse. It was just, it was a great environment. And they even indulged him in an opportunity to, to, in, to try a business that, that failed. And the mother was interviewed. And the motivation for it ended up being simply greed. He was willing to kill the parents that loved him. He ended up only killing his father. But this is what she said. This is what the mother said about him. She said she loved the son that he was. She deeply loved the son that he was. But she hated the man that he became. It was a horrific crime. The, the height of selfishness and betrayal. Breaking one of those deepest bonds, a mother and her son, just destroyed. That judgment changed the relationship. It led to alienation, a separation. And of of course, we, we can understand how the mother feels. Jonah, lament, Jonah, from the belly of the fish, he lamented. He said, I am driven away from your sight. See, God's judgment changed Jonah's relationship with the Lord. Now, at the beginning of the story, Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord, but he couldn't. Now, under this sentence of death, he is truly separated from the Lord. He feels that. Now, this whole idea of alienation, you know when someone you love no longer pays attention to you, someone you love has no regard for what you think or say, that's extraordinarily painful and unsettling. It's destructive. And let me just add as another aside, when, when marriages, when couples use this against each other, it is damaging, the silent treatment. It, it's like you're, you think it's a passive act, but it's like you're saying, you don't exist. You don't matter to me. That alienation. Now, before a righteous God, our sin is an offense that we do, right? It's an offense that breaks fellowship. And, and what our sin does, it effectively says to God, your word matters nothing to me. I'm going to behave as if you don't exist. That's why sin brings alienation. Because God, the judge overall, has his standard. He's laid out his word. And when we disobey, we're saying, yeah, I don't care. And I'm going to behave as if you don't exist. It says this in Isaiah 59 too, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden from you his face, sorry, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see, it's not God saying, I want nothing to do with you. 
Our sin is saying to God, I want nothing to do with you. That's the reason for it. Now, we might get momentary glimpses of it, but none of us can understand what an uninterrupted perfect fellowship is like. And, and I think this is true. Even with the people that we love the most, there are annoyances, there are frustrations. It's sin, right? And yes, love cover to, covers a multitude of that. But we all know that it would be better in all of our relationships if there were no sin at all. Now thinking about God the Father and God the Son and their eternal relationship, they enjoyed perfect fellowship for an eternity. But then, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I know I quote it so often. But then for our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. When Jesus was on the cross, I take it that the weight of his suffering was not primar primarily the, the physical torture of slowly suffocating to death. I think it was the fact that all of our filth all our sin, all the grotesque things that we think and have done of all humanity, all of that corruption counted to the Son of God broke fellowship with the Father. There's a hymn we sing, fairly recently written, How Great the Father's Love for Us. It has this line, How Great the Pain of Searing Loss, and it says this, The Father turns his face away. Now, I know there are a lot of theological discussions about the nature of the Trinity and some have questioned whether this is an accurate statement. And if you're interested in these things, I know some of you like theological nerds. Uh, you can look up Jürgen Moltmann and Eberhard Jungel. They really deal with this idea. So whether this was an ontological abandonment of the Son by the Father, that's where I lean, or just some sort of existential feeling of separation on the part of Jesus' humanity, we know, we know that Jesus felt the separation from the Father while he was on the cross. And it was that, that setting, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, there's this three-hour period of, of this strange midday darkness, and Jesus cried out at the end of it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, one, he felt Forsaken, he experienced the father turning his face away. The very fact that sin brings both judgment and alienation should be, brothers and sisters in Christ, should be a reason for us not to cherish our own sin, but to do everything to hate it, to loathe it. And let me ask you this morning, if you're holding on to something, holding on to some piece of rebellion, some corner in your life, you're saying, no oh God, you can't have that. Right now, confess it before the Lord, turn away from that sin, ask God for the grace to change. Jonah is a sign that sin alienates us from God, but, but Jesus bore that in himself so that we do not have to be enemies of God. Third, let's look at sacrifice. 
Now, when we think of the word sacrifice, the common understanding is that it's something we give up for the sake of someone else. So just, uh, here's a sentence. Oh, the time and energy she gave was a sacrifice for her elderly neighbor. Time, energy, something you value. That was a sacrifice. Now, from the belly of the great fish, Jonah prays this, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now, the, the word sacrifice in our text here certainly includes the idea of giving up something valuable, but it goes beyond that. The word literally means to slaughter, to kill for an offering. So certainly what's in view here is Leviticus 22.8. You can look back there. You don't need to right now. You can trust me on this. The free will offering prescribed there in the law was a vow to sacrifice an unblemished bull, male, lamb, or goat. That was an expression of thanksgiving. But the sacrifice was also for the purposes of atonement. Sin needed to be atoned, and that blood sacrifice served as an atoning sacrifice, as it says in Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, now Jonah, in, in the great fish, anticipating his rescue now from the depths, Jonah had a great deal to be thankful for. So I think this free will offering, this offering of thanksgiving is certainly in order. But I take it as a sign, prefiguring type of Christ. He's speaking in such a way that he is anticipating what Christ will do. Jonah vowed a free will offering of thanksgiving. The one who is greater than Jonah vowed to complete the work for which he was sent. Hebrews 10, quoting from Psalm 40, says this, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So the psalmist there saying, this is, th those animals, that, that's not what you want. He continues, verse seven. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You didn't desire these animals to be sacrificed. That's not what you want. Jesus is saying, You've prepared a body. You've prepared me. And Jesus' sacrifice was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His sacrifice, his slaughter, was the reason for every sacrifice that preceded it from Abel to Noah to Abraham and the giving of the law under Moses and everything. All of that was anticipating Christ. Now, if you recall, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was, Jesus was anticipating the agony that he would face. Jesus' prayer there in Gethsemane, the intensity and the anguish of which was revealed in that, that bloody sweat. Knowing the answer, he still wondered aloud in his prayer to the Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's not a pleasant thing. And it's not just the physical suffering. It's all of that sin heaped upon him. If it be possible, 
Nevertheless, and he knows the answer, not as I will, but as you will. That cup of suffering, his sacrifice did not pass from him. The Son of God fulfilled his vow. And he did it with the full knowledge that was to the glory of his Father and for the saving of his people. And that's you and me. Praise God that Jesus did not let the cup pass. Or else who would be here this morning? And in doing that, he drew together a people unto himself. And he anticipated what he would be accomplishing when he was with the company of his disciples before he went to the cross. He prayed to the Father, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Anticipating going to the cross, this glorious thing that Christ would accomplish would draw people to himself and draw in Uh, them and us if you've believed in Christ into an eternal fellowship with God Jesus says I want that that's what my sacrifice is for Jonah is a sign of Christ's sacrifice for the sin of all who would trust in him not in Jonah but in Christ Jonah points to what Christ accomplished lastly Resurrection. Resurrection. Now, um, my illustration may seem a little odd, but follow me in this. Now, if you're a parent of young children, or you'll remember this, you know when you hear the cry in the night, Mom, Dad, and you go into that child's room, and even before you turn on the light, your senses confirm that something is wrong. Now, not to be... Not to be overly graphic, but that unmistakable smell of bile. Now, sensing the commotion, the parent who stayed in bed comes to the door of the bedroom asking, what's wrong? He hurled, (laughs) right? Now, well, we say that. I don't know if any of you ever said that, but I, I don't know when the word hurl entered the lexicon as a synonym for vomit, but it's It's here. Now, again, I know I'm at the risk of giving you images that will make it difficult for you to choose a lunch destination, but but follow me. We all get that vomiting is quite a violent bodily reaction, right? And what is the body reacting to? Something. A virus, often. Spoiled food, fuzzy pot roast. Something that simply cannot be digested, right? Right? Something present in your stomach does not belong there. Now, there's a lot of hurling in the first two chapters of the book of Jonah. Go back, the Lord hurled a storm, and all those aboard considered it an unwelcome intrusion. The Lord hurled the storm. The mariners, in response, hurled the cargo. And now, normally that was to be protected, but getting rid of it seemed to be the way that they might survive, right? And then we find that the mariners hurled Jonah. That had to happen for them to survive. And at the end of what we read this morning, and the great fish hurled Jonah onto dry land. Well, it doesn't exactly say that. The text actually says it this way. 
And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, according to the word of the Lord, Jonah wasn't going to be digested by the great fish. He didn't belong there. The fish could not contain him. But this isn't about Jonah. And this is the most obvious way that he is a sign of something greater than Jonah. Jesus said this. Again, referring to that same passage we quoted. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then, come out. Now we fast forward to the present day. A lot of people acknowledge that there was Jesus of Nazareth who walked the earth in the first century. And we take it that there isn't a credible historian who would deny that this one who is Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross. But that's really where, where secular history and God's revelation part ways. Brothers and sisters of Christ, we're here this morning because of one essential truth. It's what the Apostle Paul described to the Corinthians believer as that of first importance. This is the most important thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And this truth is so very essential that in verse 17 of that same passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that without it, without this truth, our faith is futile. We believe in vain. And I've often paraphrased, if, paraphrased, if, if Christ is not raised, we're idiots. Which causes me to marvel. And this is just a conclusion. There are all church, sorts of churches, I put that in air quotes, who deny that Jesus was raised. You can draw your own conclusion about what they are. Well, the Lord decided in advance that Jonah was going to preach to the Ninevites. And that was whether Jonah wanted to or not. And the great fish that swallowed him up could very well have digested him and used the nutrients from that re reluctant prophet and, and be sustained for weeks, right? But it was not to be. The Lord appointed the fish to keep Jonah for a time, a specific time, a time that would point forward to the one greater than Jonah. So after three days, Jonah did not belong inside the fish. And instead of the fish being predator to Jonah, he became a sort of organic submarine to deliver him to dry land, right? Now Jesus, the Son of God, he was crucified. He was sacrificed for sins not his own. And like every other dead person, he was buried in a tomb. As the Lord told Adam after he had sinned, for dust you are and to dust you will return. But that didn't apply to the Son of God. The grave is only for the unrighteous. Now I don't want to stretch this too far, but it's as if the earth, if we could personify it, if we could personify the earth. It's, it's, it's as if the earth said to the Son of God, I can't turn you to dust. You don't belong here. The earth could not digest. The earth could not tolerate a righteous man in the ground, so it had to spit him out. 
I realize I'm taking some poetic liberties here. But the fact is, Jesus conquered sin and its consequence when he emerged from the tomb. The power of sin was broken when he died and the grave no longer had any authority over him. So after three days, he walked out. He had to. The earth had no authority. The grave could not contain. The grave is for the unrighteous. And the righteous son of God emerged victorious. The late Keith Green wrote this in a song. Swallowed into earth's dark womb and death has triumphed. That's what they say. But tried to hold him in the tomb. The son of life rose on the third day. Just look. The gates of hell, they're falling, crumbling from the inside out. He's bursting through the walls with laughter. Ha! Listen to the angels shout. Listen. It is finished. He has done it. Life conquered death. Jesus Christ has won it. Glorious truth. Jonah is the sign of the resurrection of the Son of God. And that victory that he secured is yours if you believe. Let me wrap this up. We're looking at Jonah, but clearly something greater than Jonah is here. And I take it that, that his life, Jonah's life, is a kind of a living parable meant to point us to Christ. Let me just summarize what I've said this morning. Sin brings judgment. Christ bore it. That judgment leads to alienation. Christ experienced it. And that means that a sacrifice is necessary. And in his body, Christ paid it. And finally, Christ's Resurrection is your victory if you believe it. We put our faith this morning in something greater than Jonah. Whether Jonah repents or not, it's immaterial. But he does point us to Christ. May God apply this to our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We see with, with your word and the intricate way you have woven stories together ultimately to point us to your son, to lay a foundation over centuries upon centuries to finally get us to the place where we can see what you have revealed in your son. That he, the perfect son of God, bore your judgment, was separated from you, sacrificed his own body, ultimately rose again on the third day in glorious victory over sin for all of us who would put our faith in him. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, for all who are listening. Father, may we live our lives in light of the resurrection that has already happened in anticipation of the resurrection that will yet be yet to come for us and that glorious hope of being united with him before your throne for all eternity. Hold us faithful to that day, we pray, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.